latter half of Genesis 26. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night, and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you, and will bless you, and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there, and called upon the name of the Lord, and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to, went to him from Gerar with Ahuzah, his advisor, and Phicol, his the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So he said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, We have found water. They called it Sheba, therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. When Esau was forty years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Let's pray. Thanks, Lord, for the gift of your word and for these specific words uh, in the book of Genesis this evening. Bless by the outpouring of your Holy Spirit our attention to this scripture. Let us hear you addressing us in what we read and in what we share and in the silence of our hearts as well. Bless these, Lord, that have gathered here tonight and that gathered around our tables for dinner. Give success to the work of their hands as they look to the finish line of this quarter. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm pretty fond of asking people the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? Uh, I know that's a question that may seem like a childish one in some ways, but to me it's pretty persistently interesting to ask that question. What do you want to do is, is part of that question, right? Like, like what do you desire to be occupied with for your life? What should you do? I mean, is there a should or not even, when it comes to answering that question, the question of your life's work. What do you have to do? Like, how is what you want to do or what you should do constrained by what you must do when you grow up? And what does your gifting have to do with any of that? 
Is it important for the work that you do be to be satisfying and fulfilling? Or is it enough for it to satisfy you with what it provides for you in the way of wealth? What counts as good work? What counts as a lifetime of having worked well? What in the end is the significance of our work? And what, if anything, of our work actually lasts beyond our own lifetime? The Bible gives us a great deal of material by which to wrestle with a question like, what do you want to do when you grow up? As well as all of these other questions and more that I just mentioned about the nature and significance of human work. And to consider what we ought to hope for and aim at in the pursuit of our life's labor. Tonight we're going to reflect on our life's work by attending some of Isaac's life work. There's a whole lot that we could that we could attend in this passage. I'm not going to offer a comprehensive reading. Instead, I'm going to try to answer some of those questions that I already asked, really by focusing on three verses out of all the ones that we just read. So mostly I'm going to focus on verse 18, verse 22, and verse 25. And what we're going to see about the nature of human work in those verses, firstly, is uh, that it's the work of human beings to make stuff. Human beings and members of the people of God, it's our work to make stuff. There are at least three kinds of stuff that we see getting made in this passage. There are two very concrete kinds of things. Wells and altars are the fruit of, of labor in this passage. Those are really concrete kinds of things that are getting made. And then there's, there's a third kind of thing that gets made that I think we could rightly call um, the fruit of human work. And it's less concrete, but nonetheless, I think it bespeaks the depths of our creaturely vocation or our calling, you might say, as the kind of animals that we are. And that's names, right? So you've got these two concrete things, wells and altars, and then the third is names. That's some of the stuff we see human beings making with their work in this passage. And we're also going to see that human work is supposed to be in some way old. It's supposed to be old, even when it's new, which is to say that human work is supposed to be situated in history, or that it's supposed to continue a story, that each of us is supposed to continue a story with our work that precedes us. So that's kind of an overview. Let's start with verse 18 here. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given him. A couple of broad observations about this verse. Firstly, Isaac's life's work is work that supports life. Isaac's life, life's work is work that supports life. He's getting water. And water, of course, is the life-giving foundation upon which any further creative work can be built in whatever place Isaac is taking himself and his family and the whole cadre of folks that are traveling with them. So with his work, he's building a foundational infrastructure, we could say, for creaturely flourishing. He does so by digging wells of water. We read, Isaac dug the wells of water. If Isaac, if Isaac is going to do what God told him to do in our reading from last week, if he's going to dwell in the land as an alien, water is the first thing that he's going to need. By digging wells of water... Isaac is responding to sheer universal necessity. Like he's just responding to need. Water is, of course, necessary for anything that is alive. 
What's slightly less obvious is that water is spatially determinative of life. It's spatially determinative of life. So what I mean by that is that human beings settle where there is a reliable supply of fresh water, or at least we used to. Now you also can settle in places like Arizona, and I don't know how they get it there. But throughout most of the existence of human settlement, human beings settle where there's a reliable supply of fresh water, either a supply that's readily available, such as in a river, or at a place where a supply of fresh water can be developed, uh, as in by, by digging a well down to the water table or to access an aquifer, or by creating a catch basin for a spring. If you have a spring that never runs dry someplace, you can cultivate that as well. So either by establishing a reliable source of water or because one is already there, water is spatially determinative where human beings settle. This is something you know if you've ever been camping in the backcountry anywhere. You know, if you've ever gone deep enough into the woods that you're beyond like where the RVs are and they have pipes that bring you water. If you've been backpacking on the Appalachian Trail or something, for example, there are places that people always camp. There are designated and undesignated campsites, but what they have in common is that uh, if folks are camping there and have been camping there a while, somewhere within short walking distance, there is a supply of water almost all of the time. So water is spatially determinative of life. Okay, so Isaac's life's work is work that supports life. The second big observation I want to note here about verse 18 is that as he sojourns through the valley of Gerar, Isaac occupies himself with the work of renewal. The work of renewal. Most of the wells Isaac and his servants are digging in tonight's reading are wells, quote, which the Philistines had stopped or had stopped up or had filled after the death of Abraham. In the accumulation of the years of his life, Abraham had cleared a space for him and his family. He had cleared space for himself and his family, not just in the land, but among the inhabitants of the land. He had done so to such a degree that if you recall from our very first reading this quarter, that before the end of his life, the Hittites um, are so used to the space that Abraham takes up in the land that they literally try to give away property to him, property that he wants to pay for. They're like, no, just take it. But the space that Abraham has created for himself and his family in the land and among the inhabitants of the land, it doesn't quite pass down intact as Isaac's inheritance. It doesn't survive that space that, that Abraham worked to create. It doesn't fully survive Abraham's death. Instead, with Abraham gone, it's as if some of the space that he had cleared out now contracts, and it's almost threatening in this passage to kind of shut or squeeze Isaac out. I find myself thinking here of like a pasture. Places where there are grass that are anywhere near woods, they don't just stay that way. They have to be mowed and maintained as pasture. And if you're not maintaining them regularly, pretty quickly they become woods again. Something like that has kind of happened here in the space that Abraham had created in the land with the filling in of these wells and the kind of hostility that we're seeing in the native or the inhabitants of the, of, the, of the land toward Isaac and his people. So Isaac's work is renewing work. He's got to renew that space that Abraham has created. It's renewing work insofar as there's something that needs renewing. So Isaac is 
undoing damage that has been done, or he's redoing work that people have undone. And this is an important reminder that even the best human work eventually requires renewal. All human work is work that is at some point going to require renewal. Our work is impermanent. We cultivate in soil where thorns and thistles are always encroaching, in places where people work to undo the work that we've done, in places where moth and rust destroy. Our work is impermanent. And tonight's reading suggests that that impermanence of our work is liable to be especially obvious at the juncture between generations. I'm kind of vaguely reminded here of a passage in Ecclesiastes where the writer of Ecclesiastes is, he's like, you know, one of the reasons life is pointless is because after you spend your whole life working so freaking hard and doing all this great stuff, some moron is liable to, to inherit everything that you worked for and just sort of waste it and ruin it. And while Isaac is not a, a moron, nonetheless, there's this vulnerability to the work that Abraham did that is really evident at this juncture at the seam between these generations. So Isaac's work is renewing insofar as there's something that needs renewing. And that reminds us that all human work eventually will need to be renewed if it's to last at all. But what it means for Isaac's work to be the work of renewal is also that it's old, that there's not much new about the work that Isaac's doing. He's not breaking new ground for the most part. Like if we were to draw a Venn diagram of what Isaac does that, that could really count as new, it'd be a pretty small sliver of the Venn diagram that doesn't overlap with work that's already come before him. We read, Isaac dug again. He's doing something that already has been done before. He dug again the wells that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father. And I wonder if we're honest at this point, especially as Americans, if this doesn't already kind of offend our assumptions about what we want to be whenever we grow up. I wonder if, to our, sensibili our sensibilities, Isaac's work might strike us as unoriginal. Like, do you want to do work that someone else has already done? Or would you prefer to do something new? Do you want to do work that's out of date? Or do you want to do work that's cutting edge? Isaac dug again the things that already had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father. Isaac renews not only the wells themselves, but their names. We read, he gave them the names that his father had given them. Why does Genesis take the trouble to tell us what Isaac calls these landmarks? Why does it take the trouble to tell us that he named the wells the names that Abraham had given them? Why do we need to know not just that Isaac built these wells, but how he talked about them? There's a profundity, a profoundness to the activity of naming. That profundity of the activity of naming consists partly in the fact that it's intrinsic to our vocation as creatures. So as has already been mentioned, in Genesis chapter 2, we read, Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the, to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And so if we were to ask 
on the basis of Scripture, what kind of an animal is a human being? A couple of things we could say in answer to that question on the basis of the book of Genesis is that they're gardening ones, like that's part of the work of a human being, and also that they're the naming ones. Human beings are the animals that do the naming on the planet. The profundity of, of naming also consists in the fact that how we name is how we live. How we name is how we live. That's because of the indissoluble connection between words and worlds. There's an indissoluble connection between words and worlds. For human beings, our world is put together in no small part with what we say about it. And that matters for how we live because as one of my old teachers used to say, you can only act in a world you can see. And you can only see in a world that you can describe. So how we name is how we live. Likewise, we human beings are storytelling animals. We don't just tell stories after the fact. Rather, we live from within stories, moment by moment. For any action to be intelligible to us, or, or an action that we would choose in some way, shape, or form, we're only able to, to choose and act because it fits into the story that we think that we're living. So as we live, we are and we are living out of some story or other. And names are a crucial part of what stories are made of. The narrative quality of names is especially evident in our reading tonight. A couple of times we hear, you know, like this place is going to be called such and such because that's the thing that happened in this place. By the way, the other day on the way to a cross-country meet, we passed a road in Calhoun, and I just happened to see it out of the corner of my eye, but I got a good look at it, and the name of the road was Green Puss Road. Green Puss Road. It makes you wonder, like, what, what happened there? Uh, anyway, so names are part of how we tell stories. So how we name is, is how we live. He gave them the names that his father had given them. Isaac is making a home, not just on the landscape, but within a specific history. By calling the wells the names Abraham had given them, Isaac willfully continues in the story that those names are telling. However much it may be a joy to continue his father's story, it also is a hardship. Because the names that Isaac um, is giving these places. And actually, I do think that I think that we have both here some wells, a lot of wells that Abraham dug. It seems like there are also some wells that Isaac is digging, maybe for the first time. Some of these are names, in addition to the names that he already that Abraham already gave to these places, which by the way, we don't I don't think, unless I overlooked something looking back that we have any of the specific names that Abraham gave to his wells previously. But anyway, he also, I think Isaac does name some new wells. And, and the story that Isaac is beginning to tell with those names that he gives to some wells, it's a story of hardship as much as it, as it is a story of joy because these names remember strife as much as they do provision. The first verse of tonight's reading says, Isaac settled in the valley of Gerar. But really for a long time, Isaac's life seems like it's anything but settled. Instead, for a long time, his repeated attempts to settle are repeatedly thwarted. 
Isaac's journey began in our reading last week in the face of opposition, and for a long time throughout our reading tonight, that opposition persists. In verse 24, when God appears to Isaac, one of the things he says to him is, fear not, which means that Isaac must have needed to hear that. It means that Isaac must have been afraid. So again, for a long time, Isaac carries out his work in the face of hostility, with the rumor of danger lurking about, being driven hither and yon by the Philistines. Opposition and undoing smolder all around the sites of his work. But finally, in verse 22, we read, He moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. So this time Isaac names a well Rehoboth, which means a broad place. This is a really rich and beautiful, kind of poetic phrase to me that's taken up many times throughout Scripture. And it speaks to the fact that every growing thing needs ample space and the right amount of space if it's going to flourish. You can see this in forests. A tree that is trying to grow in a place that has a totally closed canopy may not make it. On the other hand, that same tree that has too much room, that's just growing in someone's yard, instead of growing you know, into a tree that is 40 feet up to the first branch, is probably going to start making branches at about here because it has too much room. It will never become as majestic as it could be. So the amount of room that something has has everything to do with in what way it flourishes. You can see this in a garden as well. Every growing thing needs ample space if it is to flourish fully. The breadth of this place, this broad place of Rehoboth, isn't just its geographic size, but it's its distance from opposition and competition. Also note the phrase in what Isaac says here in verse 22, the phrase, for now. For now the Lord has made room for us. This admits that it took a while for God to make that room. Uh, This is something that's happening at last. This is a good thing that happened, but by the time it happened, you might be pretty sick of it not happening. You know, For now, the Lord has made room for us. The moment Isaac says, for now, recalls all the long succession of time when he and his hosts were still living through Persistent contention and enmity. As such, Rehoboth is a name that commends unflagging persistence. What are you supposed to do during a time when God doesn't seem to be making room for the work that you're trying to do? You're supposed to continue until you're supposed to continue the journey until you you find that He has made that room. From Rehoboth, Isaac journeys on to Beersheba where God promptly appears to him. In response to God's appearance, we read in verse 25, So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. By this point in the passage, Isaac has dug who knows how many wells. But now all of a sudden, he builds an altar. The labor or the work of building an altar is every bit as concrete as building a well. It's concrete in the sense that it's like making a thing. It's laborious physical work that changes the landscape from what it was before. 
And yet, by comparison to a well, an altar has no practical utility. Or maybe I should say that whatever practical utility an altar has is not strictly or absolutely necessary. Isaac and his flocks and herds and family and all the people that are traveling with them, they will literally, they will not literally perish if Isaac doesn't do the work to build that altar. But they will perish without water to drink. And yet, at Beersheba, the work of, of the infrastructure of worship, of building the infrastructure of worship, comes first. And it's not until after Isaac builds the altar, not until after Isaac calls upon the name of the Lord, that we read, and there Isaac's servant dug a well. This points to the fact that God himself is the source of our life. And his responding to God in worship is, in fact, the most responsible and practical thing that we could do from a scriptural standpoint. Answering God isn't doing something other than being answerable to the demands of our bodily needs. So the point I'm trying to make here isn't just that we need to get our priorities right, as if to say that the the spiritual is more important than the physical. Instead, what we need to recognize in the correspondence of these, verse, uh, of these two kinds of work in this verse is that there's a deep coherence that is suggested between the labor of building an altar and the labor of digging a well. So to move on to kind of broadly think about how we might respond in our own lives uh, to this passage of Scripture, it's worth noting that probably most of the work that's worthy of a human life is renewing work. Most of the work, at least maybe some of the best work that's worthy of a human life, is liable to be renewing work. Which is to say both that a lot of the work that most of us are called to do probably isn't going to be novel. It's not going to be new, but instead it's going to be restorative of something old. Christians should like old stuff. We should like old stuff. Not because we don't like new stuff, but because we recognize that the old is the only possible context for the new. In Scripture, new and old work, they're not mutually exclusive. Instead, they unfold in symphony with each other. What might it mean for us to grow up to be people who dig again the wells of our fathers and our mothers, to tap into the vital sources? that have already been discovered by our forebears, but which might have been forgotten or blocked up. Rather than trying to remap the world, what might it mean for us to go to places that people have already been and to give those places the names our mothers and fathers gave them? To learn the history of the places that we have the good fortune to do good work. To submit to a story that precedes us rather than trying to write our own story from scratch, regardless of the story of the place where we're doing our work. I'm asking these kinds of questions because I think we tend to have a pretty unquestioned preference for the new, for the startup. I think we have a tendency to imagine our life's work in a kind of historical vacuum. And I think we have a a kind of automatic rejection of old and established things. 
But Genesis 26 suggests that we ought to slow down a bit to consider the possibility that some of the things that we're liable to think are too old to deserve our attention or our creativity. Some of the things we're inclined to think are over and done with, things that we might be inclined to hurry past and abandon. They might actually just be wells that have been blocked up that need digging back out again. I can testify from my own life's work that when we have the good fortune to do work in which we're caring for something old, and we're caring for something inherited, we're actually starting ahead, not behind. Because what that means is that we've inherited some of the hard work of memory, of a memory and intelligence that's longer and therefore more intelligent than ours. A hard-won memory that's come down to us from former generations. Here's a kind of random redneck illustration of this. Sometimes uh, hiking through some property or other, this is like a almost like a a cliche among among hunters. You'll come across like grandpa, grandpappy's old stand. You know, it'll be like this decrepit, like real janky rotten boards that somebody just nailed to a tree somewhere. You know what I mean? And you're like, man, somebody like. 150 years ago or 80 years ago or whatever was, you know, trying to shoot a deer out of that tree. Uh, But then, and like, you don't really think about it, but then one day you get a wild hare and you decide like, I'm going to climb up and hunt out of that tree, you know? And sure enough, you find out that like freaking every buck on that property walks by that tree and it's like, oh, that's why that was there. Like, maybe I should pay attention to uh, grandpappy's old janky tree stand, you know what I'm saying? So, it's likely that most of the landscapes where we find good work to do actually have some vestiges of an intelligence and a memory that is much older than us and that can give us a great place to start if we have the patience and the attentiveness to try to recover and renew some of those memories. What does it mean for us to do work that that is kind of like the in sort of broad terms, the work of digging wells and the work of building altars. So the development of a well is is work that that goes after the life-giving quality of water. It's midwifing life, okay? And I think in in rough terms, the closer your work can come to the truly vital sources of life and flourishing, probably the more satisfying and interesting that work is liable to be. So like if at the very base of like, you know, this, uh, we can think of like, you know, work that's on a spectrum from like, it's needful, it comes close to the the sources, the, the real vital sources of what's needed for life and flourishing. We think about that as like a tree and closer to the trunk of the tree is like the really things that you've got to have. And, you know, way out on the branches of something else, like at the base would be like actually just water, you know, and then somewhere out on the leaves that are falling because they're diseased would be like uh, TikTok, like working on TikTok or something. Does that make sense? Um, in my in my view, all of those things might count as work, you know, but but the, I think the further you get down the, the in the thicker parts of that trees, the closer you get to some work that's like really has to do with the infrastructure of life and flourishing, that seems to me to be the kind of vocation that really people like, 
and that they want to do for their whole life. Probably the best and the most human vocations are the ones that are the most directly responsive to old, basic, universal needs of humans and creatures and the world. You know, Go find out how we can have the American chestnut tree again. Um, we need Amer- the American chestnut tree, and right now we don't really have it anymore. Go find out how to, to heal waterways. For example, you know, and you know, how do we get salmon, like runs of king salmon flourishing again in this country? That would be pretty satisfying and interesting work, you know. I'm just kind of thinking of wilderness places right now, but there's, there's other stuff too, you know. Um, okay, so care for something alive. Give your work to helping something or someone grow, to removing the obstacles that block the flow of what's needed for life, to really be established someplace. There's actually like an enormous number of jobs that could fit this bill, believe it or not. So it's not, you know, the, the immediate things I think of are like doctor, farmer, carpenter, teacher, you know what I mean? And I think all those things fit this bill. But I also have a friend that like makes like booty tons of money as a, as a software developer and, and like a programmer. And when you, but when you listen to him talk about what he loves about his work, what it is that he loves about his work is that he cultivates the gifts of young people, and he builds teams. Does that make sense? Like, he helps people learn how to get over dumb things. Like, he's kind of doing stuff that sounds like stuff I do all the time, you know? Like, um, he's helping people flourish in their work. Um, what are the obstacles to life and flourishing in the place where you find yourself, you know? I would love it if someone like you, you're an architecture major, right? Grew up and, and helped us figure out how do we... How do we make Ruston be a place that anyone that makes less than a quarter of a million dollars a, live, a year can live in a normal house? One of your teachers, actually, somebody that inspires me. I don't know, you know Brad Deal yet? Have you had a coffee with Brad Deal? Yeah. So, like, Brad Deal is an architect who is a, is a professor at Tech. I'm sure he can be making, like, booty tons of money somewhere else, more money than I, he's probably making at Tech. What he's using his vocation for is to try to figure out how to, to match the needs of of students in architecture with the needs of physically disabled people at a camp, like Camp Alabama, right? And so to do projects, like to give architecture students an opportunity to grow and flourish and learn how to do the stuff that they do, they make all kinds of really cool stuff that Camp Alabama, which, like I said, is a camp for disabled people, like just wouldn't have. Like it's an objectively more beautiful and cool place than it would be if that architect wasn't finding out how to really bring the maximum amount of flourishing to this particular place. Um, so care for something alive. Give your work to help some, helping something or someone grow, to removing the obstacles that block the flow of what's needed for life, to really be established someplace. So that's digging the digging wells piece. But then there's this other thing of this altar building kind of work. And that opens up a whole other vista of things that you ought to consider when you're asking yourself what you want to be when you grow up. I want to think about this a few different kinds of ways. By contrast to the work of of well digging, this is a reminder that not all of our work has to have a utilitarian justification. So yes, I think that people who get to, you know, be doctors are potentially very satisfied with their work because their life is responding to vital sources. But I also think that if you get to sit around and like write poetry for your job, you're probably also pretty happy in what you're doing. Even though the world doesn't need any more poetry, technically, 
you know? Doesn't need it. We don't have to. I mean, I love poetry. Don't get me wrong, you know? If somebody wants to pay me to write books, I will do that. So not all work has to have utilitarian justification. And that is most evident in something like building the infrastructure of worship, which one thing worship is, if nothing else, is it doesn't have to be justified. It's, it's an end in and of itself. It doesn't have to make anything more than a place to give thanks to God. An altar is the site also to which all the fruit of our work is supposed to flow. So I just want to say here that like, even if, regardless of whether your work is this utilitarian kind of work, or you do this, you get to do this more useless kind of work, your work ultimately move, should move you to worship. What, the fruit of our labor is ultimately something that we as Christians believe that we bring to an altar and offer to the living God. Also, I just want to say that Christians are still supposed to be altar builders in a pretty concrete sense. This seems to me that it's uh, something that's especially important to recognize at this particular moment, maybe in American Christianity, uh, because it seems to me that there's a subtle but growing iconoclasm that is emerging among some influential American Christians right now, and I worry that it's going to snowball into a larger trend. There's a, a uh, an influential pastor that I listened to on a podcast recently who, was, who has, has effectively stopped being a pastor after years of ministry, and he's now doing some stuff that I think is really cool in the name of Jesus. But at one point in this podcast, like a lot of this podcast, I was just like, yeah, 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 that's really cool. That's great, like gospel kind of work, you know. But he got to this point where he... He said, you know, the church is, he's kind of like running down Sunday morning worship or running down the idea that Christians need a place to go and worship regularly together. He's kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater in some ways. And he said, you know, the church was never supposed to be a fourth place. And I think what he meant by that is like, I don't know if you've heard this language before, but like first, your first place is your home. Second place is your job. Third place is like Starbucks or maybe CrossFit. And then, he, and so the four, what he means by fourth place is this kind of disparaging idea where, where like for this useless space where Christians just go and do special religious things, and like stuff like worship or hearing sermons or reading the Bible. And he was like, Christianity is never supposed to be this fourth place thing. He's not alone in in tossing out that baby with the bathwater or those babies out with the bathwater. Um, I've heard an emerging chorus, actually, among influential Christians recently that suggests that things like that the professional pastorate is unnecessary, if it's not necessary for anybody to get paid to do what I do, that regular weekly worship is unnecessary, that brick-and-mortar church building, this is the one that people are most excited about running down, you know, the church is not the building, you know, and I'm like, nah, at some point I'm going to write an essay that's like, actually it is, though. So the idea is that the professional pastor is unnecessary, regular weekly worship is unnecessary, the brick, the brick and mortar church is unnecessary, and that anything that could rightly be called an institution that has to do with Christianity is a bad thing, basically. All this, this chorus of Christians say is unnecessary at best, but often it suggests, it suggests that these things are actually harmful, that somehow all of those old things are, are things that are getting in the way of like real Christianity. And I just want to say, I want to go on record that what this 
actually amounts to, however well-intended these people may be, is a kind of reinvented Christianity, a history-less Christianity that is deluded about the kind of newness that it's aspiring to. It kind of vaguely seems to be the idea that Christianity can just become like entrepreneurialism or something. Um, and it's deluded in its conception of this, this new, allegedly new idea of Christianity. And I find myself wondering how a well-educated, experienced pastor, like this guy that I heard in this podcast, could be as wrong as he actually is. When I say that, what I mean is just like, this thing where you have some designated person leading worship at a built structure is not new. Like, jokers have been doing that for a long time in the Bible. And Christians have been doing that since the word go. You know what I mean? Uh, they, like, we've been having designated pastors who don't do anything but pastor ever since Jesus said to those fishermen, follow me. Okay? So, it's a weirdly radical, historically disjointed idea that all of a sudden Christians can just kind of slouch along in the world having totally sloughed off the trappings, the concrete trappings of what's come before we are still supposed to be altar builders. And when I ask myself, how could a well-educated, experienced pastor be as wrong as that guy is? Uh, I think it might just be simple impatience with the old need to redig the wells of our fathers. And I can understand that impatience. I can understand being sick of it. Um, and yet, I'm pretty sure they're good wells still. The last thing I'll just say is that there's a motif in Christian hagiography where people have this encounter with God, like a very vivid encounter with God, and they're like, what What am I supposed to do? And the answer is like almost always like, rebuild my church. This happens like most maybe memorably for St. Francis. If I remember correctly, he's like in this old, actually falling down chapel on the countryside. And doesn't he like look at the crucifix, and the crucifix talks to him or something, and, and it says, Francis, rebuild my church. And so then he does that. Like, physically, he rebuilds the church. And part of, like, the, the kind of delight of that story is that it's both. Like, it's both the brick-and-mortar church that actually needs to be rebuilt, and it's also that the church needs renewal, like the, the actual church, the people of God, need to be rebuilt and renewed. And to do that, we need vitality. We need to get down to water, to like the life-giving sources. Um, but if, if that motif occurs as frequently as it does, not just in Scripture, but or not just in, in, in hagiography, but in Scripture, you know, if you want to read a, an example of that, you can read the passage from the book of Haggai um, that I included on the backside of this page tonight, um, where God is like, you want to know why you're not flourishing? Because you've left my house in ruins. That's why. What it will always mean to do good work, whether you're a pastor or an architect or a poet, if you're a Christian, it will always mean building an altar, building a priestly people, building a community whose life centers around worship.